Hi, I'm Rami. And I'm Shannon, and this is Workplace Hugs, where we talk about interesting things we've read or heard to help all of us expand our life toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy, but without a whole new degree. And today we are talking about our good old buddy, Dan Heath. But wait, he didn't write this one with his brother? No. No chip on this one. No chip. Chip and Dan, man. They got a divorce, apparently. These brothers. (laughs) We're talking about- Dan was super into this topic and Chip was not. Chip was like, no, dude, I'm I'm reactive. The the book we're talking about is called Upstream. So it's like being proactive. Maybe Chip is like the reactive one of the pair. that story okay so yeah so we're talking about upstream by just dan heath today not the heath brothers rami what do you want us to know about this book shannon do you know what upstream thinking is no i have never heard about this before all right cool so a quote from the book is so often we find ourselves reacting to problems putting out fires dealing with emergencies we should shift our attention to preventing them so really upstream thinking is like being proactive. Mm-hmm. And the issue is companies, people love to work downstream because downstream efforts are narrow. They're fast. They're tangible, right? Like this is a fire. I see the fire. Let's go put out the fire. Upstream efforts are broader, are slower. They're hazier. But when they work, they really work. The problem is upstream efforts involve system thinking and reducing the probability that problems will happen, which requires systems change. But also, you get no credit for having prevented something from happening. Because how do I prove to you that what I did stopped that thing from happening? It's very hard to uh, validate. So we'll get into all of that. I was just thinking that. I was thinking like, oh, this doesn't sound very carroty, you know? Like, it's like... If I solve a tangible problem that's already here, I get a, like a big pat on the back. But if I'm fixing something that we don't even know if it's going to happen for sure, but we're preventing it from happening, nobody really seems to give crap. Yeah, it's the thing I've always told my teams in operations, which is when we're doing a good job and we're being upstream, no one is going to know and no one is going to say anything to yeah, us. It's yeah. when we are doing a bad job and we have to react that people are going to pay attention to us. And so it's kind of like upstream thinking gives you like a more time to do things where downstream thinking is really just like firefighting. I might be catching you off guard here, but I'm curious for you to, if you've got it for you to share, what is the difference between upstream thinking and innovation? I think so. I think there's a lot of innovation that has to go into upstream thinking, but I think the the big thing with upstream thinking is trying to address the problems before they become true problems and you have to react to them. Yeah. Upstream so it's like, how is do you remove the roadblocks? Yeah. Yes. So let me tell you this story. This is the story that he starts the book with. This will help everyone understand what upstream thinking is. So you and a friend, Shannon, are having a picnic by the side of a river. Suddenly you hear That's a shout totally from... a thing that I do, by the way. <laughs> no. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. Talia and I did do a picnic for Memorial Day okay. last year. <laughs> so you're having a picnic with someone, probably not Talia, someone equally your age. Okay. And you hear a shout from the direction of the water. A child is drowning. Without thinking, you both dive in, you grab the child, and you swim to shore. Before you can like recover, 
hear another child cry for help, right? So you and your friend jump back in and you rescue her too. Then, then you see another child struggling into sight and another and another and the two of you can barely keep up. Suddenly you see your friend wading out of the water, seeming to leave you alone. And so you ask him, like, where are you going? And your friend says, I'm going upstream to go punch the person who's throwing all these kids into the water. Like, I'm done <laughs> trying to save these kids. I'm just going to go punch whatever is doing this to the children. <laughs> That's upstream thinking. Okay, I got it. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. Um, I just wanted to speak to, yeah, that difference between upstream thinking versus innovation. That was my sense. It was like, well, upstream thinking is preventative, whereas innovation is like, you do get the credit again, right? Because like, you're the the new sexy thing that's on the internet or the new app or whatever. But it's not necessarily preventative per se. No, but also look, I think um, upstream thinking requires innovation because it forces you to think in a different way. I completely I agree. You're not going to get being upstream gets you less credit, yes. but it, it makes everything run a lot better. So yes. one of the things Dan talks about is the barriers to upstream thinking, right? The the three things he talks about are problem blindness, lack of ownership, and tunneling. So the first one, problem blindness, is I don't see the problem. Or, and I think this is the more likely scenario, it seems inevitable. Like that thing will happen. There's yeah. no reason for us to try and adjust for that because it's going to happen. So let's figure out the most efficient way to react to it. So that's problem blindness, lack of ownership. So that's not my problem to solve. Right. <sighs> and then it becomes a bigger issue. And then everybody's going to deal with it at that point. But going up to it and upstream thinking applies a lot to socioeconomic problems a lot mm -hmm. in that like if there are ways to adjust the way that the system is it's going to have a lot of downstream effects yeah. and the downstream effects aren't going to be super visible but are going to change a lot of lives yeah and I think that lack of ownership though that's not my problem to solve like how much does that come up with socioeconomic exactly. or um, social justice related issues. And then the third barrier is tunneling. I like, I can't deal with that right now. I don't have the time to deal with that right now. So those are the barriers to succeed upstream. The leaders, he kind of gives like five different things. And he says the things that leaders must do are detect problems early, target leverage points in complex systems, uh, find reliable ways to measure success. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Uh, pioneer new ways of working together and then embed successes into systems to give them permanence. So we'll take that chunk and say, okay, there's really three steps here to success. And it's surround the problem with the right people. Give them early notice of the problem and align their efforts towards preventing specific instances of that problem. Mm -hmm. That's heady. I'm going to give you an example here. In Iceland, they had a really big underage drinking problem. So Iceland was top in the world for the percentage of people drunk at the age of 13 or younger. Oh my gosh, that's in the so percentage, 
Yeah. And the percentage of people who'd been drunk 10 or more times in the previous year. So to solve this, they shifted the progress upstream. And it was two solutions. Remember, we're talking about 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old kids. Yeah. Right? We're not talking about grown adults. We're talking about kids. So they shifted it upstream and they said, all right, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to improve our sports programs so that kids have activities that they can get really excited about to do other than just drinking. And so it wasn't as simple as, okay, we're just going to like start a soccer team. It was, no, we're going to get like an actual soccer player or a soccer coach from a professional league to come and train and coach these kids at a much higher level so that they can actually get excited about this program and want to invest their time there and not go and drink. That's really cool. So it was, it wasn't just like, all right, let's set up some like soccer teams. It was, no, we're going to like do this right and give it a, a professionalism so that when the kids commit, they really want to commit to this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first one. Go ahead. Can I go back to the three barriers to upstream thinking for a minute and tunneling specifically? Yeah. So tunneling being like the, I can't deal with that right now as a barrier uh-huh. to upstream thinking. I, this is just so prevalent in, in my client pool, I would say, right? Because most people are coming to me in that doldrums sensation place of just like total overwhelm, burnout, whatnot. Does the book provide any guidance of like, how do you even get to upstream thinking if you are struggling with tunneling? I think the big thing is, and I think this is the, this is the tricky part with upstream thinking is if you're, it's, it's, it's hard to move past the barriers unless you start to understand the huge benefits of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and that's where I say like, especially lack of ownership when it comes to socioeconomic problems. Yep. Is, is a super hard one because having people spend, like like this example, having the government in, in communities and the parents invest into sports for kids is money that they wouldn't normally think of investing yeah. if this is the issue that they're going after. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you need to have, you need to be able to pull yourself up and say, okay, look, if we can address these way ahead of time upstream we're going to have such huge impacts throughout the system yeah that it's going to be worth it but you have to you almost have to like see a few of these examples play out to start to see that yes we can make the change but we need to figure out how to do it well ahead because then it doesn't become a problem and this is like the whole point of this book is like upstream thinking is never going to be sexy. It's never going to be this super rewarding thing. Yeah. Because if you're doing it right, you're not going to you're not going to get the credit for having done it because it, it's going to take forever to start to see the like the true impact of not having to deal with those fires. Yeah. I mean, the Iceland story sounds pretty meaningful to me personally, but even in that though, I see where like it wasn't it is upstream how they approached it, but it wasn't necessarily upstream in terms of like the problem was already here when it was time yes. for them to move into upstream thinking, which I then I think then makes it meaningful. Um, I think what I'm hearing you say on like tunneling, and I really do want to like pick at that a little bit because 
I have so much compassion for the state of our world right now and the people living in Mm -hmm. it where I think uh, many folks are just feeling like I can't deal with this right now, (laughs) you know, about so many things. So I wonder too, if maybe I forget where I, I heard this trick, but like, maybe it's like, okay, six weeks from now, what, before your calendar has filled up, how do you block an hour for upstream think time? And then hold that sacred in the future. Because you're right. Yeah, you don't have you don't have time for that right here, right now in this moment. But can we begin to get in the process of moving upstream six weeks from now when your calendar cycle has not yet completed or whatever time frame it is? So that's that's the story that I'm going to tell myself if or for the people who are feeling that sensation of tunneling of like, I can't even get to the upstream part. Yeah, I like that. Okay, tell us more. So the second part of what they did in Iceland was they introduced a curfew so that it would force parents, students to spend more time with their parents. And so the thing about this, and this is the, this is the biggest issue with upstream thinking, is its success has been so complete that it's basically invisible, right? Like most teenagers today... If you went to them and said, hey, you know, like in the 80s and 90s, like 13 year olds were drunk all the time. They'd be like, what are you talking? How is that even possible? Like they didn't have the things that you have now, this curfew, this um, commitment to excellence in sports to give you an outlet to like spend your energy and time. And so the fact that they've grown up in a world where substance abuse is absent is is success from an upstream perspective. But that's where I say, like, it's not a thing that's like tangible. Like people look at it and they go, well, yeah, they did a good job, but it also took a long time. And now they prevented those things from happening. And so it's like, how do you shift your GDP spend into those types of things? Mm -hmm. But then you can't prove it's doing anything because that issue doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like you prove it by absence, but Proving by absence stops being you, you can't really track that after a certain point if if the number stays as low as it is. Yes. That like what you're doing upstream is actually continuing to be the driver and not that something else has changed. Yeah. That's where I say like upstream to me is fascinating and I think it's something aspirational, but it's so difficult to want to invest the time and energy into because you're not going to be able to get credit for it. So one of the things that he talks about is finding reliable ways to measure success. And even he is like, I'm not really sure the best ways to measure success, because if you're preventing something, it's, it's easy initially to say, Hey, we had 10 of these issues last year. And now we have five because of this thing that I did, Mm -hmm. but you need to find a way to uh, be able to pinpoint it. I remember um, when I went to get my Six Sigma black belt, you have to prove with without with within like a 0.05% statistical variance that what you did impacted it. Yeah. And so you have to pick something that can be tested enough, but also tested with a large enough system that the one point that you make a change on can be proven to be effective and proven to be the cause of the the change in the results yeah and it's really difficult 
right? And so he says, when you're thinking about ways to measure success, there's really three things that um, can fool you. The first one is false positives. So your measures show that you're succeeding, but you're mistakenly attributing that success to your work. So the analogy that he takes here is baseball. Like your baseball team wants to win more games and wants to play better. So let me pull this through the three ways that measures can fool you. So the first one is your measures show that you're succeeding, but you've mistakenly attributed that success to your own work. So the team is super happy. Like we're hitting more home runs this year, right? But every other team is also hitting more home runs. And it's because pitching talent has actually gotten worse. Yeah. Yep. So yes, we are hitting home runs, more home runs than last year, but then, okay, we got to take one more step up. Is everybody else hitting more home runs? Yes. Okay. So then we didn't actually do anything on our end, right? Everybody has just benefited from the same change. That wasn't something you impacted. The second one is that you've succeeded on short-term measures, but they don't align with your long-term measures. So baseball analogy again, the team has doubled its home runs, but have barely won any more games. So you're succeeding at short-term things, but you're not you're not really gaining any momentum on the big things that you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is your short-term measures become the mission in a way that undermines the work. So again, if it's we want to hit more home runs because we think that hitting more home runs is going to lead us to win more games, your players may say, okay, I need to hit more home runs, so I'm going to start taking steroids. And then all of a sudden, I get caught for taking steroids, and that's going to push us back even further. Yeah. This is really depressing. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, and it isn't. That's where I say, like, the, the really nice thing about upstream thinking is when you're able to shift and start to attack some of those things, right? And yeah. we'll go back to what I'd said. The three, the three steps to success or the, to succeed upstream, what you must be thinking about are detecting the problems early, targeting those leverage points in those complex systems, find the reliable way to measure success, and then embed that success into the system to give them permanence. I get really curious about certain industries. Like um, the two that immediately come to mind is preventative medicine and uh, safety in the workplace. So like thinking about like construction sites or whatnot and how they, these poor safety managers, I used to be in industrial sales and I would call on them, but like the name of their game is upstream. Like it is what they have to do. And like literally seeing the signs in the factories of like zero fatalities or zero deaths since, March 16th of 2015 or something like that. Yeah. And, and maybe it's like only in those few industries where it actually is a thing. But then I wonder too, like, are they actually getting credit for the fact that like, yeah, you literally are preventing people from dying. Thank you. Good job. Keep thinking upstream, please. The answer is no, Shannon. So (laughs) when uh, he does this study in the book on um, preventative medical spend as a portion of like gdp and total medical spend and the countries that spend the most preventatively right upstream yes have the least amount of spend downstream right on long-term care all those things yes but that still doesn't convince countries to change and shift their spend upstream so that's where i say like it really is nine times out of ten it's a 
a lack of ownership when it comes to a socioeconomic problem. Uh-huh. So, go ahead. And having the fortitude. Like, mm-hmm. I think, like, I am so grateful for the people that are willing to practice upstream thinking and having the fortitude of, like, the courage within themselves to be like, I don't give a shit if no one ever gives me credit for this work. I know that this is the work that is going to make the difference. And I'm exactly. so committed to that, that, like, screw any amount of credit that might go out the door. I'm literally coaching a doctor right now who wants to move into preventative medicine. He's in the, the emergency department in a hospital and he wants to move into preventative medicine. But it's like, there's so little credit in preventative medicine uh-huh. that it's like, uh-huh. you almost have to grow or cultivate within yourself such fortitude of like, no, I'm so confident within my own two feet and hands that this is the thing, that it doesn't matter what the externals might say to me. This is the thing that I want to do next. 100%. Okay, sorry. I'm just really fired up about this. But that's where I say, like, I think the idea of it is fascinating. I think we all would like to aspire to do it. But the yeah. problem is it's not like a sexy thing because you're not getting a lot of credit for having done it. But at the end of the day, like, you are making significant change. Yes. That is going to have a long lasting impact. And I think that's what a lot of us aspire to do. And if you're able to do that in the right ways... That's got to be part of what the success there is. But like getting companies on board to do these things is tricky, but you can prove the value of it, right? It's just a matter of saying like, would we rather spend money on preventative care or on treating everyone's diabetes or whatever it is? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So with all of that said, I want to give you one very tactical thing to take away from this, which is this really interesting way to find accountability and so there's this lady and her name is janine Forrest, and she resolved her staffers disputes by asking them to tell the story of this situation as though you're the only one in the world responsible for where we are i freaking love this do you know what i used to do to my analysts no when they would point the finger at all the other cross-functional team partners and be like, uh-huh. it's sourcing's fault. It's my buyer's fault. It's whatever. I would say, yep. turn that finger back around. How did you contribute to this problem? I'm so for this because I think this could change a lot of environments real fast. Well, and what she, the, the example that they gave in the book, I think was um, she had two people like getting in an argument, like blaming each other. And so she sat them both down and said, all right, you need to tell me the story as if you're the one responsible for it. And so I think one, just thinking outside of yourself and saying, okay, I'm the one that caused this. Here's what I did. Here's the issues. Gets them to start to think more upstream in like, how do I prevent this same thing from happening again? Yes. Because if all of a sudden I can't blame sourcing and the stores and my buyer and all of a sudden it's on me, it's like, oh, well, you know, actually, you know what I should have done? was proactively done this thing that would have prevented all of this from happening. And you know what? That's upstream thinking. And that's a very tactical way to get yourself and to get others to do it in a very tangible way that can lead to more upstream thinking the broader and broader you take this concept. I love it so freaking much. What a great way to end. (laughs) Very empowering. Sorry. Sorry for a depressing upstream (laughs) conversation that leads us to one very tactical uh, example of how to leverage upstream. I really like it. 
the the funny thing in the book is he doesn't really hold back in saying like it's this there's a lot of problems with upstream thinking because it's not sexy he even gives an example of san diego banned plastic bags like the whole county of san diego or whatever it is minneapolis just did that yeah and they're like what a great thing this is awesome well what they found out was that later they ended up having like a crazy hepatitis b outbreak because homeless people uh unhoused people couldn't get couldn't use bags the way that they had before Oh, wow. And it led to much more unsanitary situations for them. Oh, my god! Because you took it out of their life cycle. Wow. And so that's like an... Un- this is what I'm saying. Like, the book has a lot of like, we want to do this thing. We think it's going to be really good. And then here are the unintended consequences of us having the foresight and upstream thinking yeah. to do those things. I think everything in moderation. And for me, truly, like, there were moments of depressiveness. <laughs> but I think it actually is inspiring, particularly when I think about the, the the social elements of this mode of thinking. And Absolutely. I, I don't... If, if I even tie it back to the episode on the intuitive body, like, how do we help grow people's capacity to hold within their own bodies? Like, this is what I believe. Like, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't freaking matter if you are not getting the outside um, kudos or great jobs from other people. Like, can you hold within your body that this is enough and this is important and it matters? Mm. Love it, Rami. With that, we'd love for you to connect with us on Instagram at Workplace Hugs. And I don't know, maybe share with us what you think of this episode. Did it depress you or was it motivating for you? And and how is it helping you shift your perspective on like how you're contributing to problems or whatnot? With that, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami. And this has been Workplace Hugs.